our Father, we thank you once again that you have been gracious to us to gather us here together on this Thursday morning. We thank you for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as he has fulfilled so many of the prophecies concerning, of course, his first coming that you foretold us in the Old Testament scriptures. And we thank you that he came not only to save Jews, but also Gentiles as well. And we have become beneficiaries of that. We are have the great privilege and grace and blessing to be saved and brought out of darkness into light. And for that we thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work for, on the cross, for your resurrection from the grave on that morning of the first day of the week. So now we gather on that day to worship you and glorify your name. As we begin this morning, as we usually do a few times a month, as we study some of the church history, we just pray that this would be beneficial for us as we learn and as we understand what you brought about according to your providential plan. We pray that we would learn from the strengths and weaknesses of those who have gone before us, and that in that you would be glorified, and that we would mature in our understanding of your will as revealed in your holy word. And these things we pray now, in the name of Christ Jesus. Okay, looks like we're ready this morning. Well, last time, if you remember, we were studying about Aurelius Augustine, and we studied about him a little bit before that as well. It's a little bit of a longer lesson, but we wanted to focus on him for a while because he's one of the most influential people uh, throughout all of church history. There's no doubt about it. Whether you agree with him on certain subjects or not, you still have to admit he was one of the most influential individuals. And so last time we saw a lot about his ministry, we saw how he wrote against the Manichees and the Neoplatonists and so forth. But the two main controversies in his life was the Donatist controversy and the Pelagian controversy. And of course, two, uh, you might say, contradictions come out, or I say a contradiction comes out in those controversies. His doctrine of grace contradicted his doctrine of the church, uh, but he didn't see that. His doctrine of the church in many ways was what we would call Roman Catholic in certain ways. Or what would, I mean, later on, Roman Catholicism would take many things to the extreme a lot further than Augustine, but nevertheless, you had those foundations there. And uh, he, of course, was a, uh, disagreed with the Donatists in their view of the church, and he was very influential in his uh, controversy against them. And then, of course, he had the Pelagian controversy. Pelagianism was a heresy. And it had a wrong view of man, a wrong view of salvation, a wrong view of uh, our nature, our fallen nature, a wrong view of man's will, a wrong view of grace. And it really stripped away a lot of the foundations of the biblical doctrine, biblical teaching. So Augustine battled against that. And Augustine, of course, taught that man is saved by God's grace alone, that God has predestined before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. And uh, he and he, that was completely the opposite of what Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that we're born without a sin nature. Pelagius taught that 
we can be born and follow the example of Christ and never sin. And uh, Pelagius taught that God's grace was simply the free will that we have been given and the example that we have in God's law and in the life of Jesus Christ. So he had these uh, terrible views, and Augustine, of course, battled against that and was very influential. And then, of course, we talked about, though, how there was the mediating view in between there, semi-Pelagianism. And Augustine was more gentle with these individuals. He considered them Christians who he disagreed with. But, of course, semi-Pelagianism was, in some ways, a compromise with Pelagianism. And I would say in America today, most who would call themselves, let's just say, evangelical Christians would be semi-Pelagian. That wasn't always the case. Early America, I would say the majority would have been Augustinian, Calvinistic, Reformed in their teaching. When you come to the later 1800s into the early 1900s, that faded away a lot. But in the last 20, 25 years, there's been an explosion again of Reformed Augustinian doctrine in the United States, and it still is growing. But still the majority, I would say, the majority of those who call themselves Christians would be semi-Pelagian. We said last time, and I'll just repeat this one more time and then we'll move on. When it comes to what the Bible really teaches about grace, Pelagianism viewed that grace as neither necessary nor sufficient. Semi-Pelagianism viewed God's grace as necessary but not sufficient, whereas Augustinianism viewed God's grace as both necessary and sufficient. So in my opinion, I would say that was the, really the biblical view, the biblical understanding. Now, we also talked about how the Reformation that would take place, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, really was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. And so that's why in the debates you could have Roman Catholics quoting Augustine accurately against the Reformers because they would quote Augustine in relation concerning his doctrine of the church, whereas the Reformers could quote Augustine accurately concerning his doctrine of grace against the Roman Catholics. So the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. You see, Augustine believed that all the elect would be saved, but that grace flowed through the sacraments of the church. And so the Protestant reformers understood that that is not the case. God works through his word and through the preaching and teaching of the word to save his people, not through the sacraments of the church. And so there was a more accurate understanding of God's grace in relation to the church at that time. So let's just move on then and talk about a few other matters about Augustine before we're done with him. I want to mention that Augustine's understanding of the nature of imputed righteousness would not have been reformed. It would not have been biblical either. Uh, that's important. I, we don't want to whitewash the history concerning Augustine. We talked about how he did believe in temporary and eternal salvation last time. How he believed that there were Christians who would fall away from the faith and not be saved. Again, he had a misunderstanding there. But he also had a misunderstanding concerning this issue as well. And I do think that we need to be a little bit careful because in many ways, we've had it so good. And when you consider how we have the scriptures in our own language, when you consider all the good teaching that we're surrounded with, not only in churches, but also through, you know, if we listen to preaching at home or anything like that, we really stand on the, the, soldiers, the shoulders of giants. And... Not a lot of people have had this, even in, in these times. Augustine, for example, he didn't know much Greek. And the truth concerning the imputed righteousness of Christ 
and the meaning of these words in relation to that subject in the New Testament was never presented to him in Greek. So we don't know how he would have responded to the truth of that had it been presented to him. But we should be careful not to judge Christians in the 4th and 5th centuries by the standards as we would those in the 16th and 17th centuries. So it's just something to, to keep in mind there as well. Let's mention some of the very influential books that he wrote. He wrote many things, but let's just mention three of them. He wrote on the Trinity, and that influenced Western theology throughout the centuries. And so, again, we're talking about here Augustine's influence. He defined God's oneness in terms of the divine essence shared fully and equally by the three persons, whereas the Eastern view located God's oneness or unity in the person of the Father. So there would be a disagreement between many of the Eastern teachers and Augustine, but Augustine would influence the West to you know, hold his view concerning that. Augustine also taught that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Son as well as the Father, whereas the Eastern view was that the Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. So again, you're going to have some disagreements, but Augustine influenced the teaching of the West concerning that. Secondly, we want to mention his book called The Confessions. Uh, if you know anything about Augustine and anything he wrote, this is one of the top most influential things that he ever wrote. It was actually an autobiography that he wrote concerning his early life and his spiritual journey to faith in Christ. And it's written in the form of a prayer. Still today, it's a very um, popular uh, work that he wrote. And then third, he wrote The City of God. And this was uh, still a very influential work today. Uh, a lot of people still highly recommend the city of God. But the context in which he wrote it is very important. Alaric the Visigoth had sacked Rome, and we'll talk a little bit more about the fall of Rome here in a few moments. He sacked Rome in uh, August 28th, the year 410. And many considered that the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And so a lot of people were scared, nervous. And the pagans who were still left in the Roman Empire blamed the Christians. And they blamed Constantine. They said, look, this was, this was all your fault. If we wouldn't have turned away from our ancient gods, uh, this wouldn't have happened. But because we, we did, they're angry with us. And now, look, the empire has fallen. And so a lot of Christians didn't know how to answer these uh, objections. But Augustine's book responded to those accusations and equipped the church against those accusations. And it really made Augustine famous. And he talked about how it wasn't the Christian faith that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. It was sin, and that was its cause. And the roots of this go deep in years before the fall even happened. The book also, The City of God, lays out a Christian view of history. And really, it changed the way of thinking for centuries to come, even to our own time, even in our own minds today. Let me explain why. The Greeks and the Romans had a certain view of history that we would call cyclical. They believed that history just repeated itself, repeated itself, repeated itself. Now, technically, oftentimes we use the phrase history repeats itself, but really what we mean is history rhymes. A lot of similar events might happen throughout history, but they viewed it as just cyclical, going in circles, going in circles. There's not one point moving toward a goal at the end. They didn't view it that way. Whereas we don't think of history as cyclical. We think of it as chronological. You know, when you think of history, you think of it as starting from one point, chronologically moving to an end goal. The reason why you and I think that way, believe it or not, is because of Augustine. And we might say, no, we think that way because of the Bible. Yeah, we ultimately we do. But 
it's usually biblical teachers that help us to understand the scriptures rightly. I mean, you remember the Ethiopian eunuch up in the chariot? What did he say? How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And so a lot of Christians didn't even understand this, but Augustine influenced them to be able to view history in this way, and that continued throughout the Western world to this very day. And so really, it doesn't even matter what Christian denomination you belong to. If you are a Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, you have this view of history because Augustine influenced the Western world to have that view of history. We think of history moving from one point to the other. That book he wrote really changed the culture and gave a biblical understanding of history. Now, Joe Moorcraft, he sums up Augustine's work like this. That Augustine wrote that history is God's sovereign and providential works in the world, and God is the creator and governor of history. History has, number one, a beginning. That beginning was the eternal decree of the Trinity before creation. Secondly, it has a goal appointed for it to reach, and that goal obviously is the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And then third, it has an appointed course to run and to reach that goal, and we would call that God's providence. That's a biblical understanding of history. That's one of the reasons why I like a lot of this homeschool uh, curriculum. We've had talks with Happiness about that. That's coming out really is getting back to this really strongly where we understand when we study history, Jesus Christ is the very center of history. And so when you have a biblical view of history, you have to be able to categorize what's most important and what's least important. And that's one of the problems in the public schools today is they don't know how to do that. You know, Jesus Christ is way down here. He was a historical figure. He taught this. He taught that. But, and you have people like Alexander the Great and others who are you know, of primary importance. And you know, most history textbooks in the public school today are only concerned about government and battles between different countries. They don't deal with many of the other important details of history. So you get a skewed view of history in that way. So it's really good that, Lord willing, our children will get a good upbringing in this way to understand history properly. But this is a biblical view of history. Satan cannot thwart that plan of God. And really, this view of history gives real meaning to all of life for all people, even in the minute things. Ordinary people that have significance, it's not just the high and mighty that have significance. You see, classical philosophy did not think in that way. And they did not focus on the individual. And because of that, liberty for them, the concept of liberty, really was a joke in many ways. Augustine taught people not only to appreciate culture, but the individual within the culture. And that led to the advancement in society. And really, that's the opposite of Marxism. Uh, when, when you think about Augustine, how we should focus on the individual, through that seed that was planted by Augustine, that eventually led to Christian culture in the West and to America and our view of the role of government in society and our view of the individual. That actually, you can trace that back to Augustine. Even with all some of the disagreements we might have concerning him, his view of the church and his view on some other things, we have to give him credit for that. Because without that influence, we, historically speaking, if you just look at the line, we probably wouldn't have had an America as, as you know it. Think of Marxism. One of the main philosophies of Marxism is that the good of the many outweighs the good of the few. And so what's the problem with that? Well, if you have, if you're just focused on the many, there's always going to be minority groups in the society that are going to be abused. And also, big government will define for you what is the good of the many, what the good of the many is. Our founding fathers in this country were never focused on the good of the many. They were already, always focused on the individual. 
and how he should be free to do what is right before God and government should not be able to intrude on him. That goes back to the influence of Augustine and his view of history and his writing concerning history in the city of God. And so you see here the connections to this in history. Just a practical issue as well. When the Visigoths sacked Rome, people were, as I mentioned, shocked. They were afraid and they were hopeless because Rome had been in place for almost a thousand years. And as the pagans blamed the Christians and as they blamed Constantine, the city of God refuted this and gave wise counsel in light of the situation and how to understand properly what was happening. And, you know, that's something that's important for us now today, too, not only pastors and preachers, but individual Christians to explain as we see Western society collapsing around us to be able to explain to people, now, this is why it's happening and this is what we need to do in response to that. See, Augustine did that, and it's a good example for us as well. Let me also mention just a few things before I finish up with Augustine, again, concerning Pelagianism. Pelagianism is not only a poison in the church, it's a poison in the culture as well. Uh, Joe Moorcraft describes what R.J. Rushduni said concerning this. I thought it was very good. Nations that are built... Believing, as Pelagius did, in the goodness of man always lead to tyranny. And they will view Christianity as unnecessary, and the state then becomes man's mediator and savior. And they believe then that the state and its education can save man. Whereas if a culture believes in man's depravity, having an Augustinian view of man, this leads to freedom because the tyrants will be chained down because you understand that man is sinful and he becomes tyrannical when he's given a certain amount of power and he'll always abuse that over the people. The decline of sovereign grace doctrine leads to the rise of the sovereign state. And you can even see that in our own country. Most of the early preachers did preach sovereign grace doctrine early on. That's why it's always been such a contradiction to me in our modern day where you have, let's say, non-reformed or non-Calvinistic, non-Augustinian Christians, even Baptists, who will rip on Calvinists, say they're heretical, and yet at the same time they're very patriotic and appreciate many of the early days in America, not realizing those foundations were laid down mostly by sovereign grace preachers and pastors. So it's just something to consider. The real revolution in the U.S. was... Uh, moving from a biblical view to a Pelagian view of the state. Faith of modern man is Pelagian, and the Pelagian state and the Pelagian church are really against the Christian church and the Christian state as well. If God is not sovereign, the state will be. The triumph of Pelagianism leads to the enslavement of, enslavement of man, a one-world mm -hmm. order, man's perfectibility by man, and that again goes back to a Pelagian view of things. So we'll just mention that as well. One last thing about Augustine, and then we'll be done. Uh, Augustine was instrumental, actually, in freeing slaves. And I'm just quoting this here from Kevin Swanson's book, The Story of Freedom, which is very good. And uh, here, it's some talk here about how Augustine and his church were instrumental in freeing slaves at that time who were being enslaved by the pagans. And this is important information when you consider how in our culture people will blame Christians for slavery, the form of slavery that existed in America in the 1800s. But actually 
It's important to look at the real history of the 1800s and what form of slavery that was and what was going on, but also even to go all the way back here and see how did Christians respond to slavery even in the days of Augustine. Now, there's many different forms of slavery, but we're talking here that form that was kidnapping and stealing and then forcing people into slavery. Well, let me just read you this. In a recently uncovered letter from St. Augustine, written to his friend Olympius, Bishop of Thagaste, we find a true example of corporate manumission on the part of the church at Hippo. Augustine makes mention of slave traders who were kidnapping women and children in North Africa in order to sell them into slavery. Apparently, the church at Hippo intercepted one particular shipment to Galatia and redeemed a boatload of slaves. Augustine explained, quote, I myself asked one girl of a crowd which had been freed by our church from this miserable captivity how she came to be sold to the slave traders. She told me she had been seized from her parents' house. Some four months ago, there were people brought together from different places, especially from Numidia, to be deported from the port of Hippo. This was done by Galatians, for it is only they who, out of greed, engage in such business. A member of our church became aware of it, and knowing our policy of helping with money in such circumstances, wished to tell us. I was not in Hippo at the time, but immediately our, fa our faithful liberated 120 people, some from the ship on which they were already embarked, some from private prisons where they were hidden before being put aboard. I leave it to your imagination to estimate the enormous proportions which the deportation of miserable persons has assumed in other ports. Here in Hippo, at least, by the mercy of God, the church is on its guard so that unfortunate people are rescued from this type of captivity. And he says, in the letter, Augustine further pressed for a revision of law at the imperial court. Then he forcefully argued that every pastor is morally bound to address these social issues. Augustine said, quote, for if we, that is the bishops, do nothing, will there then be anyone who has power on the shore who will not sell these most cruel cargoes rather than remove one of these unfortunate people from captivity to stop someone from being put in chains out of Christian or human compassion. And then Kevin Swanson says, this is a beautiful example of how early Christians actually redeemed the slaves while pagan tribes from Galatia perpetuated the slave trade. He shall set the captives free. Where Christianity has operated throughout the ages, it has always worked toward this end. So you see just so many practical things here, how the church was involved in rescuing these slaves and how Augustine taught that pastors should not shy away from preaching on social issues. You know, what is going on in the culture? Pastors, bishops, they should not shy away from that, those things. And also, again, Mike and Howard and I were talking about this on Wednesday, we see here a way in which God's law, Augustine wanted it to be applied to the society. Because in God's law, kidnapping, that is man-stealing, and forcing into slavery is forbidden in God's law. So again, you just see that there. So this is how Augustine and his church worked to help free these slaves, and it was a, a very a good thing and a good example for us as well, especially when we consider trafficking in our own day and what our stance should be against that. So this is done with Augustine now. It finishes up with that. Any last questions or comments concerning Augustine?
Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, we'll move on then to the next lesson. You can click on to the next one up there. We'll move on to lesson 17, the fall of Rome. And this is important because this would make there'd be a lot of changes, not only in the society, but with the, in the church as well. And so that's why it's important just to uh, discuss this. Uh, we had mentioned this previously th this morning here, the fall of Rome and the effect that this had on people. And also why a book like The City of God was a very important book at the time. There had been great benefit through what is known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Mike mentioned this not so long ago in a sermon. It really brought stability to the world. And because of this, if you think about it, in God's providence, God had the Romans uh, ruling over the people of Israel for a while. And that really was a judgment. And, of course, God used the Romans to bring judgment to the Jewish people as a nation as they rejected Christ as the Messiah. But also, this allowed the gospel to get out quickly and easily throughout the empire. When you think about it, a lot of the missionaries didn't have to learn. I mean, some of them were speaking in other languages, but if you stop and think about it, they didn't have to learn a whole bunch of languages. They could go all those distances and preach and preach and preach, and in the language of, of the people. I mean, we're talking this stretched from, the Roman Empire stretched from Britain, Africa to the Middle East, and you could really go a long way and communicate. Uh, travel was easy as well in, throughout the Roman Empire. It was easy to go from place to place. It was easy to send communications out. Uh, this would end with the fall of Rome, and in the West at least, and the result would be petty kingdoms and wars, and it would make things a whole lot more difficult. Here were some of the effects. Travel would become much more difficult as you get into the Middle Ages and the medieval period. And just, just the difference, travel was easy throughout the Roman Empire. By the time you get into the Middle Ages, a lot of people uh, never traveled any distance greater than seven miles from the place they were born throughout their whole life. So all of a sudden, the world became a very small place in the sense of people just didn't travel as much. And uh, a lot of this information here I'm getting from uh, – Nick Needham and, and James White, they have excellent stuff on this concerning the fall of Rome, so I just want to give credit to them now as I go through these things. Uh, trade would go down as well when Rome fell, and the cities began to decline due to a lack of trade. And this eventually would lead to feudalism. And feudalism was a system based on land ownership. It basically, you had the feudal lord at the top who owned the land, and then you would have the knights who were the protectors of him and the land, and then you had the serfs who were the workers, the producers. And it was a class system in which it was almost impossible to move up. And this would be Europe for centuries then, uh, eventually after the fall of Rome. There was a decline then in literacy, a decline in education. The monastic schools then would rise to importance, and in them Latin was taught, but there would be a rise of clerical illiteracy. And so think about it. If the clerics couldn't read, you had no exegesis of the scriptures, and long sermons eventually would just become little 10-minute homilies. And so you had a great ignorance of the people then concerning the word of God and just a lot of tradition and a lot of superstition that would rise up throughout the Middle Ages and really just a lot more darkness in concerning this. At times, in a church, 95% of the people could not even read a book. And so that would be the situation there. I, I thought about before in India, I had to keep reminding myself that sometimes we're in the villages, some of the older people, 
when I know uh, I'd be informed they couldn't read as they're preaching. They couldn't be there without Bibles. But think about it. If 95% of the people couldn't even read a book. This would lead to the rise of teaching aids in the churches. So you would have statues, pictures, and then the stained glass windows. Uh, and, of course, Christians like us, we would be against idolatry. And that's obviously a concern. But they would do this because the people couldn't read. And it was a way in which they could know the stories and be reminded of them through these visual aids. Cities were often advanced as they were in the Roman Empire, uh, but then they would become less advanced after the fall of Rome. Uh, Rome had uh, aqueducts and indoor plumbing, and cities, though, were not as sanitary in the West afterwards, and people oftentimes died at a younger age. Uh, who in here is familiar with, you can just raise your hand, who here is familiar with the saying, look out below? Anybody heard that? Look out below, I'm throwing something down. Do you know where that comes from? Yeah, so in the West Europe, you're throwing your waste out, or in the city, out the window, you have to say it three times, look out below, look out below, look out below. And then you throw it. So the cities were not as sanitary. And then you consider the animals and their waste in the city. And so it just became a lot less sanitary. And eventually a lot of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a person I, I doesn't want to make certain predictions about the future, but just things that a lot of us might have never thought were possible because of the way we grew up, you start to consider it might not happen, but the possibility of it happening. I was listening to uh, the statistics from 2021 and 2022 of how much the big blue cities shrunk. It's about half a million in two years in New York City uh, left. New York City. And, you know, cities like Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, it's amazing how many people are moving out. There's many different reasons for that. You have remote working, uh, costs, and COVID the COVID-19 years, the control, all that stuff. Uh, but you think about it, if that continues, and if there are other man-made viruses or real pandemics, they can spread quickly in a city, you have the threat of nuclear war, you could see how in 40, 50 years, how big cities could decline and how people could move out again to the rural areas if there's more changes. I mean, all of us, I think, in our lives, most of us, maybe not Bev, but I think so, unless when Bev was really young. But the small towns, for the most part, are shrinking, <coughs> shrinking, 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 and the cities are growing, growing, growing. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting how if God so willed it, that could turn around. We don't know. I'm not saying it's going to. But if God so brings about certain circumstances, those things can happen. Well, it, it happened here after the fall of Rome. The cities began to decline. And eventually, with the lack of sanitary uh, uh, practices, you know, this would eventually lead to the plague in Western Europe as well. Now, how did this fall happen? Well, Constantine, if you remember, actually transferred the seat of the imperial government of Rome in the West over to Constantinople in the east, 
which became known as New Rome. Constantinople previously had been called Byzantium, and the eastern half of the Roman Empire would be referred to as the, the Byzantine Empire because of what Constantinople used to be called. Beginning in the year 375, Germans were coming under attack from a fierce and large people known as the Huns who were migrating from Asia. So the Germans came together into different tribes under a king. And you can click on to the next one, and then you see here these different tribes. You had the Visigoths, which is Eastern Goths, the Ostrogoths, who were Western Goths, and then you had the Franks, the Vandals, and where is that? I think the Vandals destroyed things. We hear what vandalism. Uh, the Vandals, the Lombards, the Burgundians, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. So these various Germanic tribes lived in modern Germany, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and southeastern Russia. Many Germans had served in the Roman armies, and they had already adapted to the Roman customs. Well, the Visigoths took refuge in the Roman Empire around the year 376, but they rebelled against the Roman authorities because they were treated harshly by them. So in the year 378, the Visigoth army defeated the troops of the Emperor Valens and killed the emperor as well. Valens, if you remember, was an Aryan emperor, and he was killed by them. Then the Emperor Theodosius, who was the first emperor to declare the Roman Empire as a Christian empire. Remember, he's the one who went under church discipline by Ambrose and repented publicly. He brought back order and allowed the Visigoths to stay in the empire, but they had to be allies with Rome. Theodosius then died in 395, and the new king of the Visigoths, named Alaric, moved his people into northern Italy. After years of fighting, Alaric besieged and captured Rome in the year 410, and people at the time viewed this as the fall of the Roman Empire in the west. The eastern side of the empire would continue, but the western side fell. Jerome, if you remember, that's everyone's favorite in here probably. Uh, Jerome said this when Rome fell. My voice is choked, broken sobs with sobs as I dictate this letter. The city that conquered the entire earth has now itself been conquered. And he wrote that while I dictated that while living in Bethlehem. And so it just showed how this shook a lot of people up, even Christians. The Germans encountered what they saw as the Christian faith first from the Aryans. So when they came into contact with the Roman Empire, Christianity that they came into contact with was Aryans, heretics, actually. And they converted from paganism to Arianism. So from one era to the next. Since the Visigoths settled in the empire, they thought that they needed to accept the empire's religion. So that's what they did. So most of these Germanic conquerors, when they conquered Rome, it was not pagans conquering Rome, it was Arians conquering Rome. So those that went from paganism to Arianism were the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, the Lombards, and many of their Burgundians. Whereas the Germans that remained pagan longer were the Franks, the Jutes, the Angles, and the Saxons. You can click on to the next one. The idols of these uh, Germanic tribes. Some of you might be familiar with some of these. Woden, who was the chief god. And then you have Thor, the god of thunder. Tywats, the god of war. Freya, the goddess of fertility. And Saeter, the a water god. And we even uh, have some of our names of the week. They come from these idols. You can click on to the next one. 
Uh, Taiwat's day is Tuesday. That's where we get that from. Woden's day is Wednesday. Thor's day is where we get Thursday. Freya's day is where we get Friday. And Seattle's day is where we get Saturday. So uh, the names of the days of the week all come from pagan idols of the <laughs> uh, Germanic tribes. Uh, what's interesting is that a lot of modern atheists will say, they'll make arguments like this. They'll say like a Dan Barker, this, what day is this today? Oh, it's Thursday. Well, what's that? That's Thursday. So that was named after a pagan god, and our names of the week come from that. And, uh, you know, now we know better today, and now we're secular, and now we're atheists, and so we know these gods don't exist anymore. And, you know, basically he's saying you should advance, and you shouldn't believe in any god anymore, because we know better now we're advancing. Actually, it's not an accurate view of things. Uh, these idols did not die out because of atheism. Uh, people turned from these idols, and they became professing Christians. Whether they were real Christians or not, Arians and eventually become Catholics, a lot of them. But this didn't die out because of advancing into secular humanism, if you know anything about history. It's because these areas became Christianized. And so it's interesting how atheists will use uh, some of these arguments that are quite silly. Uh, after Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome, he left just 13 days later. As the Visigoths made their way through Italy, they moved through France and then migrated into Spain, and afterward the Vandals crossed into North Africa. And uh, again, these were Arians. So these Arians come into North Africa, and in the year 429, their king, Genseric, and the Vandals destroyed cities and towns and slaughtered the Catholics in North Africa. Augustine of Hippo actually died in his city in Hippo while it was being besieged by the Vandals. So he was there in his deathbed. He died peacefully, and he died before the Vandals actually uh, got to where he was. So a Vandal kingdom then took over North Africa, and their king persecuted Catholics and sent Catholic bishops to the island of Corsica, as slave labor to cut timber. The Roman army was made up then of Germans, and the emperors in the West no longer had much authority, but would just uh, be removed or set up as the Germans then wanted. Attila the Hun then invaded Italy in the years 451 and 453. Vandals overran Rome again in 455, and the last of the Western emperors was Romulus Augustulus, who was deposed by a German general in the year 476, which is the traditional date for the fall of Rome in the Western Empire. The German tribes then continued to see themselves as citizens of the Roman Empire because they professed loyalty to the emperor in the east who resided in Constantinople. So they saw themselves as, look, we're part of the Roman Empire too, and they are under the authority of the emperor in the east. After all the conflicts and movements, here's where everyone settled. The Visigoths settled in Spain. The Ostrogoths uh, settled in Italy. The Vandals settled in northwest Africa. The Franks and the Burgundians settled in France. And the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes settled in Britain. Maybe you know, the Anglo-Saxons, you know, that's yeah, where it goes back to. Eventually, the Frankish king by the name of Clovis, you can click on to the next one. Uh, whoops, I should have had you click on one earlier than when I was talking about Alaric sacking Rome. You can click on to the next one then. Clovis, king of the Franks, uh, between 481 and 511. 
because now remember, the Franks were still the, the, the Franks were still one of the pagan tribes. Well, <clears throat> he turns from paganism and was baptized into the Catholic Church through the influence of his wife Clotilda, who was a Catholic. So he marries this Catholic lady, and for three years she's influencing him to turn from his uh, pagan gods. Also, through a victory in battle against a German tribe where beforehand he prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ to give him victory, they had the victory. So because of this, the influence of, of his wife in the year 496, he is baptized into the Catholic Church. Catholics eventually referred to Clovis as the new Constantine because he was seen as leading his tribe out of darkness to light after they followed him into the Catholic Church. Now, again, now you're at that time in history where you have, for the most part, a really shallow conversion, you could say, even amongst the Franks, where you have the king convert, and a lot of this is becoming nominal, and a lot of the people just follow through, they get rid of the pagan gods, and they enter into the uh, Catholic Church. And so, again, you're going to have a lot of traditionalism developing, a lot of mo mo nominalism developing, and a lot of ignorance also the Franks became the first Catholic kingdom in the West, and the Catholic Church soon became the most powerful and rich institution in Frankish society. The Burgundians eventually abandoned Arianism for the Catholic Church in 517 and became a part of the Frankish kingdom in 532. So basically what you have is Arianism is dying out again, and you have Catholicism spreading and expanding. In the year 587, Ricard, the Visigoth king of Spain, became a part of the Catholic Church as well, and his people followed. So not only do you have the Franks in modern-day France, and now you have everyone in Spain as well. Finally, the king of the Lombards became a Catholic and rejected Arianism. The Lombards had conquered the Ostrogoths in Italy. And then the well-known Byzantian emperor Justinian uh, destroyed the Aryan kingdom of the Vandals in northwest Africa. So the Aryans die out, their authority dies out, and you have the Catholic Church is what spreads everywhere. Uh, let's just uh, see. Do you have a, one more slide on there? You can click to the next one to see. Yes, one more. Last thing, and then we'll be finished. Simply learning from Rome's fall. Just some, just some practical things. Uh, after the fall of Rome, the world changed a lot. It just, it really changed a lot, as we talked about. But think about this. God was sovereign in all of it, and he was in control of the whole matter. And as we go through the history, eventually, as we move on from this earlier period, you see just a lot of changes that things become a lot different. But God had a plan in all of that. And he raises up nations and empires. He also brings them down. But through it all, Christ is building his church. And we always must keep a biblical focus of this throughout our lives, no matter what changes we may go through. At times, we're going to see what you might refer to as some dark ages, where people become very ignorant of the word of God. And people can't even read the scriptures. And when you look back at that, we should be thankful of what grace that we have been given to actually, as I mentioned, have the scriptures and have good teaching because as the Lord does different things with nations, bringing them up, bringing them down, it changes a lot, and at times it changes people's access to the word of God as well. As we also consider how our own society is collapsing under the weight of secularism, 
it's important for us to also remember, just as the Christians at this time had to remember, that as the societies change, as the world changes, God is in control of it all. Jesus Christ will continue to build his church for his glory and according to the Lord's purposes and for the good of his people. Before we finish, any last questions, any comments as we actually finished on Augustine and now finished on the fall of Rome? So, Lord willing, next time we'll be looking at different subjects. Any last questions or, or comments? Yes, Mike. Anything else? All right. Well, how would you like to close?